This is a Federal News Network podcast. You've seen the footage for the past year and a half. Hospitals and health clinics nearly overwhelmed by COVID patients. Nurses, doctors, and their aides reaching the point of burnout. In some areas, these conditions are coming back. Now the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, part of Health and Human Services, wants to do something about burnout in the health workforce, in particular, a grant program with more than $100 million. For details, we turn to the Deputy Associate Administrator for Health Workforce at HRSA, Dr. Tori Mack. Dr. Mack, good to have you on. Great to be on, Tom. You know, the pandemic has had such a tremendous impact on the mental state of the health workforce and the efforts we're undertaking here at the Health Resources and Services Administration to combat burnout and ensure our workforce is able to deliver care is really needed now more than ever. All right. And what's your metric for knowing when a particular unit or hospital or area is having these mental health problems? I mean, it's one thing to say so on TV, but you must have better measures than that. Absolutely. You know, even pre-pandemic, when we look back even to studies from 2019, depending on the discipline, 35 to 54 percent of nurses and physicians across the country were exhibiting substantial symptoms of burnout. And that was due to several factors, right? There's high patient volumes, long work hours, workplace demand. So this is not new. But unfortunately, COVID-19 has really turned this into a rising trend. And so some of the things we look at when we talk about burnout is increased absenteeism, reduced productivity. You can see increased medical errors and safety lapses, more claims, and of course, high rates of turnover. Plus, it must be bad for the patients, too, to have to deal with people that are burned out and ready to choke the patient instead of helping them out. Yeah, you're right. Empathy is one of the first things to go, right, in terms of how they're able to provide that quality care. That's why this is such needed support for our healthcare workers. And, you know, these stressors that I mentioned were already in existence, but when you add on a pandemic, you can just think about this. There's uncertainty about the ultimate magnitude, how long this is going to last, the effects. You know, providers are concerned about how prepared their organizations are or how prepared the public is concern about, you know, are they going to have the right equipment and and just thinking about potential threats to their own health, right? And the contagion risk to their loved ones and their coworkers. I'm I'm a physician by training and, and I worked both in primary care and specialty care. So I know firsthand what it's like to really have that personal experience of being burnt out and of course still have colleagues and friends who are struggling with this. So it's much needed and especially at this time. All right. So we need to do more than simply drop a couple of dozen donuts at the nurses station. You've got three programs for grants. Tell us about those. Absolutely. And you're so right about that. The data shows us we can't just solely focus on an individual, right, or a resilience of just one person to face these challenges. We have to have a cohesive strategy as well. So it's important, but it's not all of it. So an organizational culture of wellness is really needed to truly address burnout. And so I'm excited to say we have three funding opportunities. The American Rescue Plan has made available about $103 million in funding for three years. And so the first program we have is Promoting Resilience and Mental Health Among Health Professional Workforce. That's fantastic because this is really going to get at that organizational culture I was talking about. It'll help organizations establish, enhance, or expand any evidence-informed programs or protocols to really promote and implement organizational cultural wellness. And so that includes resilience as well as mental health among their employees. So that also includes staff. 
The second program we have is actually thinking about trainees. So in the Bureau of Health Workforce, we have our education programs, our training programs, as well as connecting those into service to those areas that need them the most. And so our second program is actually going to be up to 30 awards, and this is to go to educational institutions and other state, local, tribal, public or private nonprofits who are training those who are early in their health careers. And so this is going to, again, provide evidence-informed, but this go-around is going to be for planning, development, and training in health profession activities to reduce burnout, to prevent suicide, and to promote resiliency among the workforce. And our third program is actually a technical assistance center. It's the Health and Public Safety Workforce Resiliency Technical Assistance Center. And this will be one award that will provide tailored training and technical assistance to these grantees of these programs because we know they're going to be able to learn from each other. You know, this field, though there is a lot of data in terms of what to support providers with, it'll be great for our grantees to be able to share that information and hopefully collate something that we can translate across the country. We're speaking with Dr. Tori Mack. She is Deputy Associate Administrator for Health Workforce at the Health Resources and Services Administration. And that was my next question, really, because a certain limited number of organizations will get these grants and be able to develop these training and resiliency programs. But is there a way to spread it to all of the places? Because you never know where the next disaster might hit and overwhelm, say, a particular area and not necessarily the whole nation. Absolutely. And again, while the pandemic has certainly highlighted the need to focus on provider wellness, this is not something that's just pandemic-driven topic for us. We certainly have considered provider wellness to be an important piece of our work in terms of a well-trained and culturally competent workforce. And so for a number of years, we've integrated that into our grants language, which is really fortunate that we have this additional funding to focus on it. And you're exactly right. We have to think about beyond our grantees, how is this going to be sustainable? So really that technical assistance center is going to be a key part of this overall effort to ensure that we are getting all of that information and we provide a way in which this can be disseminated across. And without giving away clues as to how to get a grant, do you have a general idea of what a resiliency program looks like that would be acceptable to HRSA as something to fund? Absolutely. We don't want to be overly prescriptive, and we really want organizations to focus on their needs. What we have seen from the literature shows that really a concerted effort has to be based on the needs of your individual institution. So, you know, whether that be looking at something like a call center, right, there are some supports as well in terms of consultations, referrals to mental health services and other support services as well to encourage professionals who are encountering these struggles you know, in their personal professional lives to seek help. But there's also some unique strategies that you can consider that don't necessarily have to do with that mental health as well. You know, whether that be some specific support your organization might need, even thinking about things like childcare. So, you know, this funding, uh, we really want organizations to be able to focus their efforts, and, and we really think that we want them to be able to really look at what they have available to support the frontline health workforce and really looking forward to the applications to come in. And I'm curious as to whether, say, the Defense Health System or the Veterans Health Administration, have they got programs that might be models? Because obviously they can't get federal grants from HRSA, but they are large health care delivering organizations that from time to time do get stressed. Do they have programs that could be modeled? They do. They do. There's programs across the country. You know, we can learn a lot from our federal partners in terms of what they've been able to really accomplish. And we can also learn a lot from our academic health centers and our health workforce research centers who have really delved into this quite a bit. There are a lot of studies that are looking at this, and and I think there's a lot that organizations can pull from. And I really think that they can really learn from each other as well. 
and just give us the timelines and deadlines and so forth for this particular three-part program that we've just been describing. Absolutely. To apply for these Provider Resiliency Workforce Training Programs, you can visit grants.gov, and the applications are due August 30th of this year. All right. Dr. Tori Mack is Deputy Associate Administrator for Health Workforce at the HRSA, Health Resources and Services Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview together with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but... Uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual. 
and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <clears throat> um, 
During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Looking for holiday gifts for less? Come to Ross and say yeah to making your dollar stretch on name brand toys clothes, and gifts. Get the gift of savings this holiday from Ross. Yes for less. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person, or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.